0: is at hand, the theatre is open and the play is soon to begin. You're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. My name's Frank and today I'm joined by...
1: It's me Peter, hello. It feels like a long time since we've sat down and recorded.
0: Yeah, it feels like that. I think there've been some some big life changes for you, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, This is my first podcast recording session as a married man.
0: Congratulations from all of the staff here at Drawn to the Flame. Yeah, yeah,
1: they've all been hard at work uh, in my absence, I know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, congratulations.
1: Thank you very much. I've I've got a suitably Arkham-themed wedding ring, which looks like a tentacle wrapped around my finger.
0: Awesome, that sounds great. As long as it's not like crossed switchblades, then I think it's... Wow. Yeah,
1: well, there's plenty of jokes. That would be quite cool. Yeah, <laughs> Whenever I reach into the, uh, the chaos bag, I'm
0: already coming out with a tentacle in my hand. <laughs> nice, nice. You're just already auto-feeling. <laughs> so, so one of the things we've been talking about before we jump into the meat of the episode is our spoiler policy. And listener, you probably know that I'm a stickler for rules and I like to do things by the book. It's why I always play as rogue. But
1: I mean, Frank, you're basically the, the rules master for for Arkham, aren't you? Because you update
0: Arkham DB. I'm, I think I'm just the I'm like the rules scribe. I'm not I'm not a I wouldn't describe myself as a master, but I'm a definitely attendant to rules. And one of the rules we've set ourselves with the spoiler policy, which was that we would stay current with player cards and a pack behind with encounter cards and scenarios and things like that. And one of the things we noticed in the wait for the path to Carcosa to come out was that really by our policy, we shouldn't talk about Lost in Time and Space until Carcosa came out and now Carcosa's out and we want to talk about it because we've been waiting for it for so long. So we thought we'd probably just try a new spoiler policy for a while.
1: Yeah, we had had a bit of a discussion about this a few days ago, Frank, and I think we feel that people are either quite a few packs behind or they're up to date. If they're not up to date, they're only a few days behind. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's a big section of people we're excluding by making the change we're going to make.
0: Precisely, precisely.
1: And, Bush, well, like, shall I elucidate what that, that change is? Yes. What, what we were thinking was, we basically just stated at the beginning of the episode which pack we will be, will be speaking about, uh, and then everything in that in that cycle, in terms of the story, up to that pack, will be fair game. We'll probably also refer to the core campaign as well and maybe make references to encounter cards or, or bits and bobs from previous cycles. For example, in this episode, what we'll say is we're looking at the Path to Carcosa Deluxe box. So we'll talk freely about the encounter cards and the player cards in that pack. In fact, we'll talk about all player cards that have come out up to now. We might reference the occasional encounter card from the Dunwich Legacy but we won't go into any depth on story spoilers for that. So if you haven't touched the Dunwich Legacy at all, you'll be safe to listen to us. Is that fair to say? Is that what you had in mind?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think, I hope what this means is it's a little bit of future-proofing as well, that if you're a, you're new to the game and you're listening to this as your first episode and you've not played any of Dunwich yet, you don't need to worry about coming into our podcast and being like, wait, there's a train in Dunwich? And you know, you, you won't get a story spoiler in that way. But also, if we want to talk about Beyond the Veil or Visions of Future's Past or cards that have come up in Dunwich and how they might come up in Carcosa or not or what could be done differently, we don't feel restricted that we need to sort of flag up certain points and not others. So essentially what we're saying is things are fair game and we'll always start an episode with a warning about what we're going to talk about.
1: I think it keeps it a bit more consistent as well that when we say the name of the pack, everything up to including that pack in this cycle is, is what we're going to talk about. I think it's it's probably a bit easier and I'm trying to remember which pack was out and then we go one before it and stuff like that. So I, I think it's it'll be easier for us and I think it will be better for people who listen to us as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I felt, to go back to the rules point, it felt a shame that we had Matt Newman on the podcast immediately after Dunwich ended and there were people who probably were wanting to wait and our rules wouldn't talk about Lost in Time and Space. But of course, that scenario, you have the lead developer of the game on, you want them to talk about all of the scenarios and the finale that you've just played. So it just made sense to revisit it and try something new.
1: Uh, I know that's what we're going to do. Matt's often said he he, he kind of wants to treat it like a TV series, that people are talking about the individual episodes. And certainly, I think some of the most interesting conversations I've had about... The story is in you know, those kind of couple of hours after you play it through for the first time, and I fun you up really excited on my way home.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, trying not to get run over as you're sort of delightedly talking about what's exactly, happening. yeah, precisely, and yeah, we want to share that enthusiasm with you, the listener, as well. So, yeah, hopefully we can do that.
1: Okay, should we move on to our, our next topic or our first topic, really?
0: Yeah. So The Path to Carcosa, by the time that this episode is live, would have been out for two weeks in the UK, and I think two weeks around the world basically, and we've already done our first look at all of the player cards, I hope you've enjoyed those episodes, thank you very much for any feedback you've sent us about that, but we thought that now that we'd had the cards in our hand and had a chance to play with some of the investigators and the player cards, we'd just talk briefly about some of our first impressions. Um, is there anything that's really leaping out to you, Peter, as a, a first investigator you want to talk about or a particular player card that's surprised you?
1: So I've played through both of the scenarios once and, and that was a team of uh, me playing Mark and my friend playing Min. And then I've got a, another uh, campaign uh, due to start this week, actually. In fact, it should be the day the podcast comes out, I think. So Great. Yeah, Mark was interesting I suffered a lot from not having any horror healing in that deck I think. It's one of the first times I've really played with someone with only 5 Sanity and it's amazing how fast that disappears. That said, when I got set up with Mark and I had this this engine out of of Sophie and True Grit and Painkillers, I was really happy cycling through my deck, drawing cards, getting the stuff I needed and It turned out, uh, what's it called? Let me handle this. That came in really useful a couple of times, just when an enemy appeared on the other side of the board, spawning, engaged Min. We just needed Min to have some maneuverability, so it's just like, yeah, Mark Mark can take that and sort that out for a turn. And my impression of watching someone else play Min is that she's really good, uh, which quite surprised me. I think it's maybe the card pool is quite interesting. I think her ability is really cool. It, It lets you really kind of pounce on a, on a skill test and do it a lot better than you've got a right to do on that skill test, especially if you build a right.
0: Yeah, uh, for sure.
1: Well, what, what what's, your, what's your impression?
0: Similar as well. I've, I've, I've seen someone else play as her and then I've played as her and it feels like for the first time it's a seeker that really doesn't want to do much setup at all. You know, a magnifying glass maybe is all you want down, maybe a laboratory assistant or something like that. But I never felt uh, pressurized for... Resources. I always had lots of cards in hand, even though I I drew an amnesia and ditched all of my cards. I just drew back up again, very kind of comfortably, and with analytical mind down, you start to become this real powerhouse. I I'd rattled through my deck, so I yeah I liked her. She feels she does feel really robust. I've had a couple of times where I ended up with an enemy engaged with me, and I just thought it's okay. Someone can come and take them, or I can I can afford to. I even played. I had a poltergeist engage me and I played fine clothes so that I could then parlay the poltergeist more easily and it, it was your, okay. Your, too uh, horror for the, like ghost hunting suit. Yeah, exactly. I just pulled on my overalls <laughs> and I was ready to go. So yeah, I like her.
1: I think what I find interesting about Min is I think first up, her weakness is really nasty and you need to be mm-hmm. prepared to deal with that because the other thing about her is that you tend to draw quite a lot of your deck. I noticed this with Mark as well uh we both when we played we both went through our deck i think and definitely in the first scenario we both went through it. i think i was a few cards from the end and actually i ended up getting defeated with with horror in the second one but i was a few cards from the end of my deck yeah. then so both decks could reasonably burn right away through all their cards and go back around again which makes me wonder about one these investigators in the Dunwich Legacy.
0: Yes, for sure, for sure. I'm really glad you mentioned the the power of Mark because I've played with Mark a little bit and yesterday a friend was playing with Mark as well. And I think he was genuinely a little bit taken aback by how accelerated that draw is. It's that real guardian I don't think is that used to having a real handful of cards. Not that, that Roland or Zoe have any problems with card draw, they don't, but he just can speed you up to such a great degree even if you're only getting say four or five draws out of him it's it's incredible and we he played true grit so whenever anyone else was getting hurt true grit was taking the damage and that was getting mark even more cards it's yeah i i'm finding it hard to put my finger on what it is but there's a there's a difference with that ability that that makes him feel really quite potent which i really yeah i really like
1: one of the ones I'm looking forward to seeing, which I've I've heard a bit of rumblings about, is Yorick, who sounds like he's really good. A lot of people have got a lot of nice things to say about him. Have you have you used him or, or seen yeah. someone using him yet?
0: I've I've sat next to someone who put two copies of Knife in their Yorick, <laughs> and I thought, mm, really, Knife? Are you sure? Do you want to go Knife? And then they spent the entirety of the first scenario of Path Carcosa, Call, slinging knives at things. And it was amazing. (laughs) And I was like, who is this juggling knife throwing guy? (laughs) It's, yeah, incredibly powerful. I've played him solo and found him a lot harder solo. That two intellect is really tricky, particularly with the two factions that he has access to. You've got evidence, and look what I found. And that's like the most of your clue getting ability. You know, it's really, it's really difficult at that point. But yeah, he seems. Definitely in multiplayer, where he can be just a dedicated sort of scooting around, slicing things up. I think he looks really cool, hmm. and I like. I'd like to try your police badge, Yorick, at some point.
1: Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'd I'd I'd, I'd considered that. I think my my original Yorick deck I've I've still got planned is uh, is the animal army. So just bringing back guard dogs and stray cats.
0: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly if you use. A non-discard weapon so say you run a machete rather than a knife you actually you're killing killing enemies hopefully and you're not replaying the weapon that you've used to kill them so actually you do want things that you can you can get back from your discard pile that aren't that aren't your your weapon so like a a stray cat or a or a guard dog yeah i think the other thing that that i like about him and this is a really wendy thing is Because you can get things back from your discard pile, it really encourages you to think carefully about committing things. So you might see a machete and go, oh, well, I definitely want to play that card. But actually, it might be worth committing it to a combat test because you can get it back later. And even if you don't get it back immediately, and it's the same thing with Rabbit's Foot. I'll throw Rabbit's Foot to a test because... I might kill something later and play the rabbit's foot and I won't sort of keep things in my hand as conservatively, which I'm really enjoying. I think that's a really... Again, it's slightly hard to pin down as a sort of play style, but it feels subtle and it feels like as you get to know your deck, you could probably really leverage that and make make a lot out of that. That could be really fun. And then I got to play Lola for the first time yesterday and I finally took the plunge in that regard and... Yeah, I sent you the deck list.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting. I, I still... My brain still can't handle Lola. I need, I need to see someone playing it or just pick up a deck and try it myself. How did you find yeah. the switching roles during the game?
0: So I put a clue token on my investigator card because I'd normally keep the clues I've gathered off my investigator card in a little pool. So I put a clue on my investigator card and I flipped it over to remind me when I'd used the free trigger ability to change... And I used just a a die, six-sided die, to mark the six different roles that I could be. So one for Guardian, two for Seeker, and so on. So I just did it that way. And one thing I noticed was that there was never really a time when I wanted to switch and I couldn't. That's interesting. And I was was really expecting, I don't know if it's a best case or a worst case thing, but this idea that you could have this sort of mega setup where you get all of these different faction cards down and you're really powerful and what actually happened was i draw my five cards and i'd maybe had so i so my deck is seeker survivor and rogue and yeah i'd have two seeker cards and two survivor cards in and you know say a fire axe a leather coat and a dr milan something like that so you'd say right i'm starting a seeker start a seeker you play your dr milan and switch to survivor play your fire axe and then do something else or you know maybe do it the other way play your fire axe switch to seeker play your Dr Milan and investigate once say and that's all you'd need to do so the this idea that your roles are kind of flipping around and switching that i was really worried about getting my head around the actual mechanics of playing it i was only ever really planning one move a turn if that and i kind of quite comfortably did that move which felt felt nice
1: interesting i, I i've heard I was speaking to someone else about Lola and and they were saying you, very thematically she's an investigator who if you plan out what you're going to do and everything goes to plan, she's very good but she can sometimes struggle to react to a very quickly changing situation. Do you think that's fair? Yes,
0: yeah. She's actually a really nice counterpoint to talking about Min and Mark who can get through their decks very rapidly and i don't think i saw half of my deck in the two scenarios we played we played we started a campaign with mark lola and jim Mm -hmm. and i drew beyond the veil and just thought yeah fine don't mind and i honestly wasn't i had a lot of neutral skills in there but i didn't have any other draw and yes there was at no point where i was was really worried about running out of deck and i think as a result i also then didn't i didn't see that much of my decks i wasn't I didn't often have sort of optimum plays that were being taken away from me. I saw Crisis of Identity once, and it got rid of a leather coat, so that was fine. And I only saw Improvisation once, and it helped me play a Doctor Milan for one, which was great. But even playing that and getting to switch role, I would have switched to Seeker anyway and played Doctor Milan. So it wasn't it wasn't sort of as clutch play as I thought. But yeah, I think I think the other thing there is that. It, I mean, it depends entirely on your deck and what you're hoping to do. But often I felt like I didn't have very much in my hand, so I was taking skill tests sort of naked without buffing and relying on everyone else for a bit of support. But then being kind of pretty good as a clue gatherer and pretty robust as a fighter, I was sort of, yeah, I was okay. It was definitely really fun. It's uh, You can probably hear in my voice I'm finding it hard to sort of define <laughs> what it was like. But maybe because I built a very conservative deck and played pretty conservatively, you know, those sort of, the fundamentals of Arkham, you know, help yourself, help getting clues better and have a good weapon to protect yourself with and then you should be all right. And, and that's how it felt that I was okay. I'm thinking about maybe trying to put Cat Burglar in now. Uh, I, oh, and that was the other thing. We got 6 XP for doing House Always Wins and Jim and Mark, the players, were like, okay, great, I know what I'm doing for my 6 XP. And I was like, oh... I have no idea how to even begin to like six XP could be could be anything. Yeah. That could be a blood pact and a key yeah. 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 Or it could be a stand together and uh, you know it you just the mind boggles at that point. Um, I ended up being really radical and upgrading to duck. <laughs> That's good though. <laughs> I'm like, that the lamest choices, yeah. I've gone for kind of consistent Lola, I guess. That's Really well done.
1: Sh- should we should we segue into talking about the actual
0: scenarios then? Just before we do, there's one other player card thing I wanted to mention, which is that we had a really nice email from a chap called Andrew. Andrew, thanks for emailing, and he writes that he was listening to our first look for Carcosa and what we were saying about hiding spot and. Th- Thank you to everyone who hasn't complained about how convoluted our discussion of hiding spot was. We should probably talk about that again. Oh man! It,
1: like I, I, I listened back to it and I was like, "Oh, this is this is horrible." And I chatted to you about it, and you you said that was the edited highlights, and I was like, "Oh my <laughs> yes, word!" Yeah. What was the original cut like?
0: Long and convoluted. <laughs> because we both we both got confused on a different point. Yeah. <laughs> You got confused on that. You could, you, you didn't realize you could play it on any That's location, right. I, and I had it in my head that giving enemies aloof meant they disengaged. Yeah. From L- you. So we, we
1: L- listening back, I could, I could spot, I could spot the mistakes we were both making, and we were both oblivious to the person having made a mistake until the penny dropped. Yeah, that was yeah, painful listening. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, well, let's talk about hiding spot because I actually got to use it for the first time today. But so, Andrew's email just he says, or Andy's email rather, he says us talking about hiding spot reminded him of survival instinct which is a not particularly hugely played survivor card and particularly using it to overcome the cultists in the third scenario of the corset, the devourer below when any cultists you've not dealt with in midnight masks turn up on the main path and you have to find a way of either fighting your way through them or evading them so you can move in survival instinct them and move on Or, as we were sort of talking about, you could have played hiding spot there so that when they arrive, they're all aloof and then you can move through. And he also points out that cunning distraction can also do that if you've got the five resources, move in and evade every single enemy at the main path so that then everyone can move past. And he asks us, what are our thoughts on survival cards for moving through places, of which there seems to be a fair number of? Which I think is a really, really good question. And what I discovered about hiding spot today is I used it proactively rather than reactively. And what I mean by that is, everyone else left the location I was in, and I was playing min, and I had one more clue to get before I was going to leave, and I played hiding spot and ended my turn. So I played hiding spot for free because it's fast on my own location. And then I knew that if I drew any enemies from the encounter deck, I could still grab that clue and move and then hiding spot would get discarded because there'd be a ready enemy at that location. But I wouldn't have that thing of saying, no, 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 everyone wait here with me because if I draw an enemy, I'll need you to come back and get it off me. I could just, I just knew that for next turn, I would have three actions worth of safety and what actually happened was I, I cleared the location and left and then later we drew an enemy that ended up going there and, and the hiding spot got dis- discarded which was great because I could then replay it But so yeah something I don't think we said in our discussion of it was this idea of actually using it yeah, proactively or preparatively when you know that there's going to be a location where you might want to pass through.
1: I, I think what's, what's interesting about hiding spot is that it's fast so it's if you want to do that trick of moving through a crowded location, it's the only one of the trifecta of survival instinct, cutting, distraction, and hiding spot. This is the only one that lets you keep three actions. The other ones mean you have to yeah, carry out an evade action to use them. What you can do with hiding spot, yeah. slap it down, yeah. move straight through, and you're good. And yeah. because it's fast, yeah. you can keep it in your hand until the, the time you want to use it, and then, then drop it straight away.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, I think we sort of conceptually thought about hiding spot as a way of protecting you once you've got enemies. But of course, where hiding spot's really useful is sort of landing it on a location where there might be enemies or where enemies are, but there aren't any investigators. So that it then, yeah, you're finding like it's like almost like a little shortcut through that location or a path through.
1: And And actually, it works okay even though it's got the non-elite stipulation on there, what what you can sometimes find is that other enemies on a location with a boss <laughs> make your life more complicated. So... Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Precisely, yeah. right? Those times where you draw... Yeah, I was about to say a whippoorwill but they're aloof anyway, but where you, you end up with more enemies around you than you want to be dealing with. Even like a ghoul minion when you're dealing with Well, exactly, beast. yeah. I was going to suggest that. Irritating, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's...
1: it's it's I, um, I think it's... It's an interesting one. I think I'm going to have to play with it a bit or persuade someone in my in my group to play with it a bit just to get, get the measure of it some more.
0: It's this classic thing as well of that Survivor now has quite a lot of cards that, you know, there's also bait and switch that's also in evade that also can manipulate where enemies are. And we've not really yet got to the... We've not cracked that puzzle yet, I don't think. I've not seen anyone who's really cracked a sort of toolbox. I'm imagining maybe it's a Wendy deck a toolbox Wendy where she's got these different evasion tricks that sometimes she's pushing enemies away or sometimes she's making enemies aloof and everyone's running through. And I think there's definitely a role to be had there. But yeah, um, we've not got there yet. Yeah. Okay, well, should we press on? Speaking of Wendy, yeah, I ran Wendy through these two scenarios and had a very enjoyable time. I think I sent you a many exclamation mark (laughs) text after doing it, one of several, one of several, exactly, but that really just highlights a larger point of how exciting it's been to play these two scenarios from the part to Carcosa and the start of this new campaign. What are your, what's your headline view about what we've got before us, Peter?
1: Oh, I, I love it. I love. I think they were both brilliant. There was a lovely tonal difference between these and Dunwich, which. And I, yeah. I, I don't think Matt would mind me saying this, Dunwich feels more like a standard Arkham Files supplement story. This feels... it's a bit different. And I think for the first time in playing the game, I'm really excited to see what the story does rather than just getting a pack to play another scenario.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you're nail on the head with that idea of a tonal difference.
1: There was There was lots of little things... In it, in little details in both the scenarios that I really liked that were interesting twists on the way we normally do things. Like, I, I, I often get it's often a bit annoying when you have a, a lovely investigation spec character and you turn up to a scenario and you find out all of your investigation tech is useless. But in, yeah, I'd see, I'd, I'd, I'd heard people whispering about parlay tests, so I put a uh, fine clothes in my mark deck. And that showed up pretty early, so I, I could actually help quite a lot, Jazzy Mark. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it even says in it says in one of the descriptions to the scenario you put your best best clothes on.
0: Yes, it does. Yeah.
1: So yeah, so Mark could do a fair bit of investigation, but it, it still used those stats that you build your character in. So even if you're not using deduction to find extra clues, you know the your perceptions and and, and things like that are still helping you with the investigation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, precisely. I think one of the ways that, that Matt Newman is managing to convey to the player this tonal difference is in very small details. So, for instance, as you've just described, the mechanics are all the same. There's still fighting to be done, there's still investigating to be done, but there's definitely more parlaying than we've seen ever before. And even though that mechanically is a similar sort of thing, stick your hand in the bag, grab a chaos token, It's just it puts pressure on your investigator in a slightly different way, I think. And then I think the other way that he's getting that difference out is it felt like these two scenarios were a lot richer in flavor than we've seen before. We've definitely, uh, this is not to say that Dunwich has been short on flavor, but this has felt really rich, really immersive from that first theater location. Flavor text must've been one hell of an intermission all the way through to how much flavor text there is, and going into different lobby rooms that turn out to be different locations underneath them, and then also the experience of turning up in the in the house in the Last King, and all of the the flavor that comes with that. Yeah, it felt it felt incredibly immersive, and it didn't feel like the kind of classic pulp horror.
1: One of one of my my friend's favorite parts, and in fact, it, it didn't it didn't crop up during our playthrough. So he showed it to me afterwards is one of the back rooms there is the dressing room, and you can put on mm, put on yeah. an outfit in the dressing room and, and dance around, and, and it heals some horror. Uh, and it was just one of those touches that really helped things come to life, I think. Really felt like we were exploring uh, this ramshackle theatre.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. And you go into another room, and it's filled with rats. And it's like, ah, rats everywhere. And then you go into the lighting box, and it's cramped, and suddenly your hand is really expensive. There's really nice... Combination of different pressures and, and oh, things yes, uh, I,
1: I, I think I told you this the other day. But when we were setting it up, I noticed there was a link between the the balcony and the theatre. And I said, "Oh, what? So you, I suppose you just jump down, it That seems a bit silly." But of course, when you get up there, you flip it over, and it says, "If you move down to the theatre from here, you take two damage." I'm like, "Oh, well, <laughs> yeah,
0: you do jump." Down. One step yeah. ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. The other detail that I really liked. I mean, obviously for you if you played it the resolutions are gigantic there's a lot of text there and it feels like matt has the license to really lean into wanting to explore a pretty immersive story but i noticed that a lot of them have bullet points that aren't aren't useful they're not things to put in your campaign log they're just these moments if it feels like matt is standing over my shoulder making a little yeah, comment yeah. in my, in Tutting my head probably. Tutting, yeah, tutting as well. Exactly. And given that one of the key themes of this campaign is what is real and how much can you really trust your instincts and your observations of the world to have these bits of text that he didn't need to put those things in, but he's put them in any way to leave this feeling of unease. I think it's incredible. It's um, I, I think I mentioned to you I really want to know who Nigel Engram is, the director of The King in Yellow, and the name, I thought, this has to be some kind of an anagram or a code, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, actually, on a similar topic, I think one of the things I really like is he's allowing us to put a bit more personality into how we're playing it. So in Dunwich, typically, you, you got there was a couple of choices scattered through the, the, the campaign, but, yeah. but ultimately they didn't yeah. have a huge amount of effect on the end result largely your choices were driven by what you managed to do in the game. So, for example, in... uh, I don't want to go into too depth because we just got done with our new spoiler policy, but but early on, for example, (laughs) the ending of extracurricular activities, there's a few different routes you can take, but once you've done one in the game, you're locked into that ending. Here, finishing the scenario, you're instantly presented then with a choice uh, without any gameplay context for where that choice is going to what are you going to have to do to get there? It's just, you know, you've left this, what do you want to do now? It's similar to that moment where you have to pick to burn down your house in the, the core yes. campaign. And there seems to be a lot more of that. And I have no frame of reference for how these are going to affect our campaign as it goes on. And I think it's interesting because it gives us a lot of replay as well. So there's there's at least, straight away, there's three different ways to play it with doubt, with conviction, or with a balance of the two. And I think what we might see... yeah, and
0: There's those three different interludes, which are all a choice as well. At the end of this, this pair of scenarios
1: directly affect what's in the chaos bag.
0: Yeah, yeah, and add to this doubt and conviction meter that at the moment is essentially useless, but is already it feels like more concrete evidence of the choices we've made and the journey that we've embarked upon. I think that's that's quite powerful. It's like a little bit like looking at a character sheet between between adventures of a of a role playing game where you can start to see where you've put pencil marks on things and where things have started to develop. Which I suppose is what our investigator decks are doing. But this is even more concrete evidence of the of the change in the journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you're spot on for the replay value. I played four player on release day and then I was itching to try Yorick for myself, so I tried solo and curtain call pounded me. It's a very difficult scenario solo and I even went online to ask other people what they thought and I was given a, a similar response. It was, it was sort of cheering that other people said, oh yeah, it's it's hard solo, you're not a complete failure, Frank. But I think partly there's they're asking you to do different things in your decks. Yeah. You can't just throw together what's sort of a consistent deck and hope for the best. I,
1: I think in it won't be long before we, we start to understand how the scenario is put together and we adapt our deck building to to perform better in these scenarios
0: yes yeah and so for instance as i said earlier i now have fine clothes in my min deck and use them to good effect dealing with the poltergeist but for, for how good it would it it would be in that second scenario
1: it's worth i think it's even worth swapping it in paying an experience point or, or just having it in your deck and then swapping it out afterwards i think it's worth having two in there just for how much yeah. pressure it takes off you in, in that second scenario, and even it helps during the first yeah, scenario as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's there's utility for it, and it it that card came out at a time when it it really felt like it had no application, and we joked at the time. ooh, will there be parlay in? I think it was. Uh, did it come out in Undimension Unseen, or Where Do My Waits? It was one of those two. I think it was the yeah, Where
1: Do My Waits, wasn't it? I don't know. I can't remember.
0: Yeah, and we sort of we sort of joked about that. Would you be able to parlay the cultists at the top of Sentinel Peak? But actually, no, you couldn't. <laughs> yeah. But now it's coming into its own. It's really nice. It's really nice to see part of the card pool being used, where other people, you know, said, "Well, this is going to stay in the binder forever." It's nice to to get it out.
1: Fantastic. Well, should we wrap it up there for today?
0: Yes, I think I think so. I'm really excited about what the campaign has I can't wait for the next pack I
1: can't wait to start my four player campaign as well I can't wait to play it with people who haven't played it yet
0: (laughs) you'll have to give us an update on it when we next record as to how that's going on absolutely
1: yeah I'll try and get some of my decks published as well good idea
0: yeah yeah that stuff's all up on the on the Arkham DB for those people who want to put their decks up there's a really good Mark Harrigan write-up up at the moment on the front page recommended reading just talking about some of his differences. Oh, and if you've not yet looked at Safina Russo, she is bananas, so go look at her as well. Fantastic. So if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're Drawn to the Flame on Facebook, and we've just got over 200 likes, which feels really wonderful. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Drawn to the Flame on Twitter, and you can also email us, we're Drawn to the Flame podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Andy, for your email that was worth attention. And for all the other emails we've received as well, we'll get back to everyone we've not yet applied to. We've both just been busy bees. You can find me on Twitter as well. I'm FB, E-P-H underscore B-E-E, And I'm around the places, Zozo and Zooey Glass. Peter, where can people find you? Uh,
1: I'm on Twitter and the Discord and Reddit as Unitold. So yeah, say hello. Oh, we're just about to start. I think I've got maybe one card left in, because I run the card of the day thread. With some, uh, as I've been away, uh, one of the other users Darth Caboose has been filling in for me. So, so thanks to them. But we're just about to finish Dunwich Legacy, so I'll have a few days break, and we'll start Path to Carcosa very soon as well. So.
0: Wow, you've sort of caught up. Yeah,
1: I yeah. I, I in other card games they leave gaps between the packs just to allow. I think it's better if people have played with them a bit. In order to understand, you know, have some experience, so I I might wait either a week or two weeks before I start the next the next cycle. But they're really good discussions. There's a real variety of people contribute to those. So if you want some hints and tips for getting the best out of uh, out the cards in the game, yeah, head over to the Arkham Horror LCD subreddit.
0: Yeah, heartily recommended. Not that I'm a Reddit user, but I sometimes go and read the discussion anyway. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've got plenty more planned and we're going to record some more shortly and yeah thank you very much for listening thank you that's all I could think of saying <laughs> <laughs> there's our there's our um, our blooper at the end Thank <laughs> you.